You're listening to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Hi, everyone. I am recording this introduction Friday, April 10th. We are officially one month into our stay-at-home I don't even know what to call this, with our six-year-old and (laughs) two-year-old. Today's conversation will be helpful for all mothers, no matter your stage in the parenting journey. I assure you there will be one moment that will make your day. Oh, I know. Now I'm just being hyperbolic. But it might make your day because days are pretty gray for a lot of us. So, I, I, you know, I stand by that. We explore many topics in this conversation that we could use a refresher on during these claustrophobic and isolating times, like setting boundaries and defining our core values and learning how to say no, especially when we're feeling overwhelmed. This is going to be part one of a two-part series with our guest, Diana Spaulding. Tomorrow, we will be releasing part two, where we get an update regarding pregnancy, birth plans, and the fourth trimester during this pandemic. So be sure to find that one by subscribing to this podcast, or you can find us at AtomicMoms.com. Yeah, check that one out. Now for this first part, we are sharing a conversation that we pre-recorded in February and uh, so much has changed, but the tools Diana shares in this conversation are still very applicable today. Diana is a certified nurse, midwife, pediatric nurse, and mother of three. Her children are ages eight, five, and four. She's a BA in anthropology from Emory University and a BS in nursing and a master's degree in midwifery from New York University. In addition to caring for thousands of pregnant women, Diana has worked in pediatric oncology and has served several professorial and advisory roles in her higher education settings, including Georgetown University. Diana is the digital education editor at Motherly and the founder of Gathered Birth, a motherhood wellness center in Media, Pennsylvania. P.S. She is doing online work over at Gathered Birth. So uh, you can find the link on our website, atomicmoms.com. She's also the author of The Motherly Guide to Becoming Mama, Redefining the Pregnancy, Birth, and Postpartum Journey. You know, she co-wrote that with Jill Koziel and Liz Tennity, and it's out April 14th. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Jill and Liz. Hi, Jill. Hi, Liz. They are the founders of the online community Motherly, a website that I have loved for so many years now. So let's kick off this conversation with Diana. I mean, there are moments of it that feel like a time capsule, like I'm complaining about how our weekends are too busy going to birthday parties for kids, and that feels, oh, feels so bittersweet now. But again, the tools she offers are helpful to us now while we are in quarantine, and I know they're going to be helpful again when we're all able to go back out into the world. I'll be right back with Diana Spaulding. Hi, Diana. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. This morning was actually surprisingly easy, so now I'm, like, superstitious. So if the internet goes out, I'll call you right back. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I want to start off with the book because it's a tomb. It's over 500 pages. There's beautiful illustrations. Oh, thank you. And so what makes the Motherly Guide to Becoming Mama different from all the other pregnancy guides out there? 
Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess I could say I have four kids, and mm-hmm. this is my uh, this is my fourth one. I have an eight year old, a five year old, a four year old, and a five hundred and fifty page year old book, <laughs> <laughs> which is this. Um, it is. It's been such it's such a thrill, such an honor to write it. You know, one of the things that I think sets the book apart is. It's sort of the framework that I have for practicing midwifery with how I went into writing this book, which was that it is never my job as a midwife to tell a woman what is important to her. It's my job to ask her what's important to her and then respond accordingly. And that was how we went about sort of creating this book in the beginning. We started by asking our community of, you know, thousands of women what they needed in sort of the new pregnancy guidebook. Um, what were the things that they liked about other books? What were the things that, you know, they wanted to to see changed? And, you know, most importantly, what were the things that they really needed addressed? Um, and then we started creating from that point. So it's very you know, community driven. Um, The other thing that's been really important to us is that, um, is that it's inclusive, you know, that, that women can really see themselves in the pages of this book, both in the illustrations and the language that's used and the content that's addressed. And it's woman centered, you know, obviously when you're pregnant, like such an exciting piece of that is this new, beautiful baby. And of course we celebrate that throughout the book. But also, you know, acknowledging that women are on this profound, transformative journey. Um, And we really wanted to, you know, give her the opportunity to reflect and learn about all the different aspects of her life. You know, not just like what's happening inside her uterus, which is super cool, but also like what's happening with her career, what's happening with her relationships, what's happening with her you know, emotional status, all of the things that change. So, you know, trying to make it a a woman-centered approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just mentioned the inclusivity that you share in the book. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little more about that choice. One of the things that has been really interesting in doing research for the book um, are just like the images that are out there, whether it's images in you know, photography that's available to, you know, put on websites and illustrations. It's all white women. It's all white women. And that is upsetting on so many levels. Um, And, you know, in addition to it being all white women, it's like white, like thin, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) women. And so we, you know, worked with a really amazing artist, Stefa Lawson. Um, and, you know, really, it was important to us to make sure that women of all different skin tones and body sizes and, you know, hair and you know, all of these things were, were represented in the book. Also, you know, really important to us was, you know, addressing sort of head on the maternal mortality crisis that the United States has right now. Black women are three to four times more likely to experience complications and mortality um, than white women are. And so we felt like it was really important to address that, you know, again, head on and not sort of gloss over this critical, critical reality. Also, um, you know, unless I am quoting somebody or, you know, telling a story about myself in the book, I don't ever say the word husband or boyfriend because like it's, 
2020, right? And, you know, and relationships obviously are way more varied than that. So, you know, the language is inclusive of all types of relationships and people who are not in relationships, people who are going into this as single mothers. So, yeah, I mean, again, like I said, you know, just really making sure that women feel like they can read this book and get immersed in the experience as much as possible and not be like, oh, well, this this paragraph wasn't written for me and this paragraph doesn't include me. Um, you know, that, that was something that I, I think our society needs to just sort of be done with. So that was really important to us in creating the book. This is going to be a hard question because, again, it's over 500 pages. So brace yourself. But what would you say is the single most important thing expecting mothers should remember on their journey into motherhood? Oh, gosh, that is a fantastic question. Um, I have to say that I think it's a combination of some kind of cheating. This is like kind of two, but a combination (laughs) of being gentle on yourself and trusting yourself. And I do think those two things go hand in hand. We live in an age where we have access to so much information, right? And, you know, it's it's great and I wouldn't change that. But all of this information that we have at our disposal means that there's a lot of noise out there. Noise that sort of is telling us what a quote unquote good mom looks like noise. That's telling us like what the best way to give birth is noise. That's telling us, you know, all of these things and noise is telling us that we can't really listen to our own intuition, our own inner voice. And so I really want for moms to, you know, get all the information, read studies, read articles. It's all great. But at the end of the day, you are your expert and you are your baby's expert. And it's okay to trust that maternal instinct. Um, You know, I work with so many moms who were like, yeah, I just, I really am nervous about this thing that my baby's doing, but I feel like it's kind of weird and I don't want to call the pediatrician because I don't want to bother them. Like if you have something that you're worried about, you call, it's okay. It's okay to to just have a gut feeling and, and to respond to that. And then, you know, on on a similar note is just being gentle with yourself, understanding that this idea of, you know, a good mom, like, doesn't really exist, in my opinion. Like, we're all just moms doing the absolute best that we can. And we need to stop judging ourselves so harshly. You're, you, you love your kids and you're doing the best you can. You're like a mom that's it. And so, so being nice to ourselves and talking nicely to ourselves. Um, and, you know, I think that goes from all the way from the conception, you know, trying to get pregnant journey, you know, all the way through pregnancy and birth and, and into the fourth trimester and certainly beyond. Mm. Well, following up with the being nice and kind to ourselves, there are three tips from this book that I'd like to share with our listeners today that will apply to all mothers, no matter where they are in their journey. And the the first one is you discuss movement in the book and you worked with someone named Brooke Cates. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about her, but also can you walk us through the lift and wrap movement? Because this is something that I I need a little help with again, I think. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So Brooke Cates is 
founder of something called the Bloom Method. And it's prenatal classes that are like, pre, well, I think prenatal and postnatal classes. Um, and the thing that we love so much about Brooke and her method is that it's so focused on sort of strength. You know, it's not necessarily about like, there's no mention of, you know, like weight gain or weight loss. It's all about sort of building this core um, and sort of, you know, giving birth in awareness and being aware of your core and your center. So we really appreciated that and love that, which is why we have her, uh, her work all over the book. The lift and wrap movement, it's kind of like Kegel exercises where you're sort of like, you know, in Kegel exercises, we're aware of sort of like clenching, not clenching, sort of tightening the pelvic floor. The lift and wrap is sort of extending that kind of idea to your pelvic floor as well as your sort of core abdominal muscles. Um, the way that Brooke describes it really well, um, even though this is like a, 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 took me a minute to sort of wrap my mind around this analogy was, you know, when you go to like an arcade and they have those like claws where you put the quarter in and then you try to grab like the toy in the mm-hmm. bin. So you're kind of thinking of the muscles of your pelvic floor as that claw and you're kind of like pulling them toward the center and then upward. Um, And as you do, you're engaging the muscles of not only your vagina, but your whole core. And so she talks about doing this to, you know, throughout pregnancy and and then eventually once you, you heal, you know, you can start doing this again postpartum as sort of getting beyond just Kegels and really working on having you know, abdominal muscles that can um, that can support and make it through pregnancy, um, you know, relatively intact mm-hmm. and, and strong. And then also, um, you know, to help you give birth feeling like a little bit more confident, especially when it comes to the pushing part. And then it can help you afterwards, you know, when you have a perpetual cold and you're always sneezing. It's like, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, and it's so interesting, you know, when we talk about um, postpartum recovery, especially when it comes to the pelvic floor, because we, a lot of times, I think in the medical community, we have been guilty of having this kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you had a baby, that's normal. That That happens kind of attitude when people say like, well, every time I sneeze, I pee or like I can't laugh without crossing my legs anymore or like sex hurts or, you know, all of these fairly common postpartum complaints. And, you know, when you're very newly postpartum, those things are all to be expected. But once you get to that, you know, four, six, eight week mark, those are signs that we need to sort of pay attention to this woman and um, and listen to her and see what's going on. You know, in, in countries in Europe, they have, as part of their routine postpartum care, they send women to a pelvic floor physical therapist um, and they get, you know, a series of visits to sort of rebuild their strength. And that's just not something we do routinely in the U.S. So one, we need to start, but two, in the meantime, it's great to have, you know, people like Brooke who are helping to empower women with the tools that they need to sort of get them started on this path of recovery. Absolutely. Okay. So the second thing for our listeners yeah. to do today is you suggest decluttering your calendar. 
And for oh, in yeah. the book, this is for <laughs> women who are pregnant who, you know, you need to start evaluating the time you have and when you need to rest and how you're going to get to all those doctor's appointments and everything else. But for the rest of us, we could all declutter our calendars. And you give three suggestions for that. It's when you're looking at what you have committed to, it's do I have to do this? Does this make me happy? And do I look forward to this? Yeah. And then how do you get out yeah. of it if someone, if you look at your calendar and you realize, oh, God, or do you just wait? It's, do you just say, I'm not going to, from now on, I won't commit to anything? It's, you know, I think that's going to be personal. I am like a super people pleaser, which is part of the reason I get into this issue of having an overly full calendar. Uh-huh. So full disclosure, full disclosure, this is something that I am very much working on. So just because I've written about it in a book doesn't mean that I am like an expert on this aspect. <laughs> this is the goal for all of us, right? Um, you know, I think that some people are able to be like, you know, I definitely have friends who will come to me and be like, listen, I said that I could come to your kid's birthday party, but I'm really tired. So we're not going to come. And I'm like, okay, great. Good for you. And then, you know, there are people that will, will, you know, in the kid's birthday party sort of scenario, will just RSVP and say like, hey, we have a lot going on that weekend. We're not going to be able to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best pieces of advice that I got for people that are like me and have a hard time saying no, like in person is to say, let me check my calendar and get back to you. So you have a moment because sometimes I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. And then mm-hmm. I think about it and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that or I don't have time to do that or, you know, whatever. So give yourself sort of an automatic pause and then you can get back to them, you know, and say, hey, I checked my calendar and it's not it's not going to happen. The other thing is, um, you know, when you're saying no to things, don't feel like you have to give an excuse, like a reason. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we, I think as women in general, are people pleasers and we're like, oh, but they'll be mad and they'll be. You don't really owe anybody an explanation. So you can be, people can say like, hey, can you join such and such, such, you know, such and such a committee? And you can say like, no, I'm not able to do that. Mm-hmm. That's it. Done. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to tell them all the other things. I'm not able to do that. Um, You know, and then I think part of it also, and this is going to take longer, but there's sort of this societal shift that needs to happen. You know, we need to, as a society, start supporting women and all people who say no to things. You know, not if someone says, no, you know, I really can't do that. Not pressuring. Oh no, come on. It's only going to take an hour. Come on. It'll be fun. Like, no, if somebody says no to something, you know, as I say to my kids, no means no, (laughs) you know? Um, so really supporting people to, 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 you know, to tell them that it's okay to say no, because you're going to say no to the next thing, you know? And listeners in a little bit, I'm going to be asking Diana about boundary setting in the fourth trimester. So that will blend in so seamlessly there, but I want to get to our third (laughs) takeaway for today, that is the importance of identifying our values before we get into the motherhood game. So I learned about core values on this podcast a few years ago. Uh, I had a guest on named Ethan Sawyer, and and it's been so helpful for me to realize what my inner struggles are. And usually it's because I'll have like competing core values. (laughs) So it's really important for me to, you know, show up, but it's also really important for me to do this other thing. So then that's where the tension lies. And so I think it's really cool how in your book, you list out a page of different values and you can 
identify like what is the most important one for you that can be sort of your North Star. Yeah. What was your value again? What was what's yours? Yeah, thank you for for um, for asking, and I I want to hear what yours is too, if you want to share. Um, my this this list actually came from a woman named Tiffany Hahn, um, and I took a class with her, like an online class, and did this exercise. And then I was like, oh my gosh, can I put this in the book? And she said yes, which is great. So it was something that was super powerful for me. So my number one value, it turns out, is trust. And it's just been so interesting to do this exercise and and realize that like the times when I am in, you know, in the groove and just feel like I am being authentic and I'm happy and I'm feeling satisfied, it's because I have a great deal of trust, whether it's trust in myself, trust in my partner, you know, trust in you know, the the situation that I'm in and the times when I am feeling sort of the most angst and, you know, emotional and, and you know, sadness and being upset is, is when I don't trust something, when I'm not trusting a decision that I've made or I'm not, you know, trusting a person that I'm interacting with or, you know, a situation. Um, and so it's been so interesting to have that perspective because it's given me a lot of like insight into myself. Like, wait, why am I so upset by this? It doesn't seem like a big deal. Oh, okay. Of course, because my trust has been violated. Like, and, and then I'm able to sort of move forward from that understanding. When I read this in your book, I looked up Tiffany Hahn and I found her podcast and it's raise your hand, say yes. and there, there was a great, really short episode that I'll put in my show notes where someone wants to leave her job, but she feels guilty about it. And Tiffany gives the advice of what do you do about that guilt? And it was really empowering and stirred up a lot for me. And I, I can imagine would for you as well as as this, you know, self-proclaimed recovering people pleaser about that we're not responsible for other people's feelings and Ugh. that we need to do what is, I'll use the word, in alignment with yes. what we're supposed to be doing in life. And so on this list of values, the one that popped out for me now, and I think it was different a few years back when I worked on this with Ethan, is alignment. Like, I just want, mm. like, is this in alignment with who we are as a family? Is this in alignment with what I want this podcast to feel like for our listeners. And for some reason, that word right now is really powerful to me. I love that. I'll just ramble off a few of these words and people can, you can Google them and you can obviously find them in the book, but abundance, acclaim, accomplishment, achievement, action, adventure, affection, agreeableness, alignment, ambition, analysis, artistry, authenticity, balance, Beauty, bravery, calm, caution, choice, collaboration, comfort, commitment, communication, compassion, confidence, connection, consistency, control, conviction, creativity, curiosity, dedication, delight. So those are just a few of the values that are listed. And I just think it's such a beautiful tool to use on a daily basis. It can really help us delineate what matters most in the moment when we're having a hard time making a choice. It's so true. Yeah. And, um, 
Yeah, and if I can add just one thing, we had another contributor to the book, Tiffany Dufu, who is she, I mean, she's, mm-hmm. she's amazing. And she, and I'm going to get this, I'm not going to quote her exactly right, but it's in the book. But, you know, she says, like, unless you are very clear on what's important to you, you know, other people are sort of in the driver's seat. And that resonated so true with me, you know, and, and like, that's why, you know, in the example that we used before, you know, take a beat when someone asks you to do something, let me check my calendar and get back to you. And you take a minute and you think to yourself, not only do I actually have physical space in my calendar, but really, you know, to your, to your point, is this in alignment with what I want to be doing with my family right now? You know, for me, is this a situation that I trust or do I have some type some type of sort of like internal misgiving about this, even though I can't really pinpoint it, mm-hmm. um, you know, giving yourself permission to make sure that you're, you know, responding to the things that happen in your life intentionally and in a way that serves you best, because ultimately that's going to give you the greatest sense of control um, over what's going on. Mm. So a main component of your guide is encouraging women to find their community. And I was thinking about how in the early days, there's a lot of time in those beautiful like mom support groups. And some of the women from those groups are still my closest friends today. And there's a lot of time to actually dig deep and talk to each other, even though you're exhausted, but you can share a lot about who you are. And then you hit the toddler stage and it's harder to connect with mothers, or at least that's how what I found, because their toddlers are always interrupting you, and they're always asking, like, why, 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 or yelling at me about how I feel the banana wrong, or they're climbing on the bookshelf. Oh, There's just, like, constant interruptions. <laughs> so you suddenly, like, have to become, like, a speed dater in your conversations with yeah. other mothers. And so, because you're trying to get all this information out, and, like, you know, pick them up as a mom friend, <laughs> You have such a short period of time to do it. So can you give us like the speed dating version of how you, Diana, became a nurse and a midwife? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the speed dating version is that I'm the daughter of a midwife. So my mom um, has, you know, is retired now, but was a midwife for over 30 years. So I sort of always, I think it's always sort of been what I was supposed to be. I was around birth forever, but of course it was like her thing. So I wasn't going to do it. Um, Went to undergrad studied anthropology, which was fascinating, then decided I wanted to be a nurse, was working as a nurse um, on a pediatric unit for a couple of years, went back to grad school, um, took one class on, you know, midwifery. And I was like, okay, (laughs) this is it. I'm like sitting on the edge of my seat, literally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, switched over to the uh, the midwifery program um, and the rest is history. Why did you take the nurse direction first? You know, I think that um, I was still, I didn't know at the time that I wanted to be a midwife. Um, I was um, studying in in college. I got to study abroad in Costa Rica and I did some public health research there, which was amazing. And I had this kind of, I don't know, just this moment where I almost like I was, you know, talking to people I was working with there and, you know, teaching and talking about health a little bit to the to the extent that I could at the time. And I just had this moment where I was like, I want to teach people about this. And I don't know how else to do it, but to become a nurse. 
So it was just kind of this like flash moment where I was like, all right, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> so um, decided to, to, yeah, to go to nursing school. And, you know, it is, even though I'm not actively working as a nurse right now, um, you know, it's one of the, the best decisions that I made because obviously it led me on this this path, um, which I never could have predicted. Um, but it's just such, I mean, I have so much respect for nurses and, and people who are, you know, d- doing that, that work and, and changing lives in that capacity. So it was, it was a really cool thing to, to do to sort of start this um, career trajectory that I have found myself on. Mm. When I delivered my first child, Sabrina, there was a nurse who came in the room. And when I locked eyes with her, I was actually in the bathtub at the hospital and I, and my doula was there. But when I locked eyes with this nurse, I knew that I would make mm. it through and everything would be okay. Uh, and I, I she didn't say anything. That. Her name was Dawn or is Dawn. She's no longer in LA. Cause of course, when I was pregnant with my second child, I was immediately at Cedars being like, is Dawn around? Is Dawn around? Um, where's Dawn? <laughs> where's Dawn? <laughs> I need my Dawn. But she, of course, I find out later was also a midwife. So, oh. And then I was like, of course, of course, she's the one who like got me through. <laughs> how, how common is that? Because I, it, it was a total surprise to me that someone would be a nurse and a midwife. I mean, they go hand in hand, yeah. but I just didn't realize that there was such a a connection there. Yeah. So, you know, in, within midwifery, there are um, several different sort of ways that you can be a midwife. In the case with what sounds like probably Dawn and with me is that I'm a, I'm a certified nurse midwife. So that means that um, I became a nurse first. And then, so I got a bachelor's degree in nursing and then I went on to grad school and got a master's degree in nursing, focusing on midwifery. You know, some people, like in the case of me, it took me a minute to realize um, that I was going to be a midwife. And so I had to sort of go through these steps to to become a midwife eventually. Um, and some people want that sort of really strong foundational knowledge that you get in nursing school prior to going to grad school and becoming, um, you know, a midwife or, you know, a nurse practitioner. Um, some people who sort of know potentially earlier on in the trajectory than I did that they want to be a midwife can um, go straight to midwifery school and are not also nurses, and they are called, um, you know, certified midwives or licensed professional midwives. There's a lot of sort of different classifications, um, and those, you know, I outline those in the book because it's confusing. Um, you know, it's confusing to sort of figure out who is this person in the room, and you should you know, you're allowed to know who the person that comes into the room is, um, who's attending your birth. <laughs> Which is a crazy thing to say because I'm laughing because I'm like, I had no idea who these people were coming into my No. Room. And here's the thing. So many people don't. Like, so, like, that's so many people don't because we, this is like a totally different question than what you were asking, but we get this mentality sometimes in hospitals where it's like, oh, go check on the woman in room 202. Mm-hmm. Like, no. Her name is like Jen and she's a person and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so like we get this, you know, sort of have this idea that we can't ask or we can't say like, hey, you're a new face and I'm 
very exposed from the waist down. Like, why don't you tell me who you are and what I mean, your credentials are? I was like um, flat out you know, naked, but yes. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah. I mean, just you get to that point in pregnancy or, or, or labor where you're like, I don't care. Just let's just do this. <laughs> you know, my husband's still laughing about our doula took some pictures and it, it's like Swedish porn is what he always says. Because like I yeah. have an eye mask on. I'm like on this birthing ball. Like it's just I mean, I don't know what Swedish porn is. So I, I'm sorry if I'm offending any Swedes out there. But like it's just uh, yeah, it's a different experience. But I still have a name and it's Ellie and <laughs> I'm still a person. Exactly. Exactly. And like, are you a student? Are you, you know, um, you know, people, people should introduce themselves and, you know, also ask permission. And this goes back mm. to, you know, the the piece about trauma that you were asking about earlier. You know, I'd like to check your cervix now. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a hard thing to ask permission for. It's not, I'm going to check your cervix. You know, I'd right. like to see how dilated you are. May I please do a vaginal exam as opposed to I'm going to check your cervix are very different experiences. They are. And I'm, and okay, you mentioned in the book about GBS. So the reason I'm bringing it up now is I feel like this was a crucial moment with my first birth when I was asked if they could check my cervix. And I said, no, thank you. (laughs) Good for you. And I think that could have made all the difference because my water broke first. And I was GBS positive. So can you explain to our mm-hmm. listeners what that test is and what it means? Yeah. And um, yeah. let's talk a little bit more about it because in the book, it says that you will also probably have your labor induced. And I was one of those who luckily didn't have my labor induced, but my water did break first and I did have GBS. So I want to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So GBS, um, stands for group B strep. And it's a bacteria that is present in some people's body. Um, it usually lives in their reproductive or urinary or GI tract. Um, it's not a sexually transmitted infection. It's not like a hygiene issue. Um, you know, we really don't know why some people have it and some people don't. Generally speaking, in most healthy people, um, it's not really a big deal. It can cause urinary tract infections, but for the most part, you wouldn't really know that you have it. The concern is that if it is in the vagina and the baby passes you know, through the vagina and is therefore then exposed to this bacteria, the baby could become very, very ill. So we do a test. Um, usually around week 36 of pregnancy, where um, there's a swab that is placed like about an inch into the vagina and then a little sort of dab in the rectum or the anus rather. Um, And then we send it off to a lab and we test it for this bacteria. Just a note about this test, you know, often in sort of traditional practices, it's the doctor, the midwife that's doing this test. But I will say that there have been studies that have shown that it's actually equally as effective to to do this swab on yourself. So if that's something that interests you, don't hesitate to ask your provider if that's an option. So we'll send it, you know, send it off to a lab. And if it comes back negative, great. If it comes back positive, fine. It just means that when you are in labor, we're going to give you, or we're going to recommend that we give you um, several doses of antibiotic 
so that we decrease significantly the risk that your baby could um, get sick from GBS. One of the things that we get concerned about when the water has broken is that, you know, the amniotic sac, the bag of water, um, provides like a, a barrier. There's a level of protection that's there between, you know, the vagina and the outside world and the baby. Once that bag of water is broken, that barrier is no longer there. And so while this is always important, it becomes even more important to be aware of, you know, how many times we are introducing foreign objects <laughs> like speculums or fingers or, you know, whatever into the vagina, because anytime we do that, we're exposing her and therefore the baby to, um, to more risk for infection. So it's awesome that you, you know, said, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Um, to, no, thank you to the, the vaginal exam. You know, I always, I always sort of feel like with vaginal exams, the question as a midwife that I always ask myself is, what is the point of this vaginal exam that I want to do? Am I curious, right? Like, yeah, am I curious? Okay, like curiosity is valid, but not when it comes to like a woman's pelvis. So is, you know, if I'm just curious, it's probably not a good reason to do a vaginal exam. And with your three children, you had midwives and you had your babies at the hospital with epidurals. So how does yeah. that work? If someone's interested in finding a midwife, do they get to keep the OBGYN as well? Or because yeah, you don't typically question. go into a hospital with a midwife, right? Yeah, it depends. It's an interesting question and it's changing a lot. Um you know, 2020 is the year of the nurse and the midwife. So um, there's sort of lots more attention being paid. So, you know, there's more and more people are using midwives. Um, still, it's not what is most commonly done in the United States, um, which is different. You know, I talked about Europe before, like in lots of countries in Europe, the only reason you would see a doctor for your pregnancy is if something like if there was a high risk situation or, if, you know, you needed a cesarean, everybody sees midwives. Um, in the United States, most people are still seeing, um, you know, OBGYNs or family practice doctors or DOs. Um, and then some people are seeing midwives. Um, midwives, actually, like 95% of midwives actually work in hospitals. Um, so many, many hospitals do have midwives. Um, midwives also work in birth centers. And then midwives will also do home births. A lot of it depends on the laws of the state um, and where midwives work and where insurance covers them mm. and, you know, all of that. So if someone is interested in having a midwife and also having a hospital birth, um, you know, they can, I would say, start with your insurance and just see, you know, what your insurance covers and what you're, you know, willing and able to pay out of pocket if it, if it doesn't cover, you know, what you have access to in your geographical area. Um, and then just making phone calls to to the local hospitals um, and seeing, you know, do they have a midwifery practice? In um, many, many, many states in the United States, midwives work independently from OBGYNs. So, you know, when I was delivering babies and catching babies, um, you know, prior to writing this book in New York, I worked alongside with physicians, but never in a sort of 
they weren't supervising me. They weren't my boss. They weren't, you know, I, there were patients that I had that would go from conception through, you know, the postpartum visit and never see a doctor um, because midwives can do, you know, in most states can do all of that prenatal care. Um, and midwives can also do well woman visits. So, you know, I see a midwife now for, you know, my GYN visits for pap smears and, you know, you can go to a midwife for birth control and for STI, you know, testing and treatment and, and all of that breast exams, all of that good stuff. So if somebody is interested in having a midwife, I would make some phone calls to see, you know, where midwives are practicing around where you live. And if you like the idea of a hospital birth and, you know, potentially an epidural or not, but want to have a midwife, it could definitely be a possibility. So cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. You know, earlier I had I'd given a teaser that we were going to talk about boundaries during the fourth trimester. And this yes. is so important because it's such a fragile time. It's like, I, I, we're so tired and I remember feeling at certain moments, almost like I didn't have skin. Like it's just, if you feel oh. so sensitive and so vulnerable and so raw. Oh, I love that analogy. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I really <laughs> identify with that. Wow. Super so, powerful. So share with us a little bit about boundaries because those of us no longer mm. in the fourth trimester, we could still probably use a little practice. Oh, gosh. I um, have said in the past that I think when a mother crosses the, or a woman crosses the threshold into motherhood, she does so with deep power and incredible vulnerability. And that, you know, her heart is kind of open and raw. And that the energy that is around her becomes her inner voice. You, and, and I have to say that I think that this applies for women who give birth and like parents who adopt babies too. Like there is just this transformation that happens when you become a parent where you are just like raw and vulnerable, like you said. And I think that, gosh, I mean, I'm an anthropology major, right? Like there's gotta be some evolutionary reason for this. And I think part of it is because, you know, we are like, we're a social people and we live in the village and what the village thinks matters and all of that. Um, but we're very, very susceptible to opinions and judgment and, um, and sort of, you know, either self-doubt or confidence, whatever is sort of infused into us. Um, and so being really mindful of that, ahead of time so that you can set up these boundaries or ask someone close to you to set up those boundaries for you. You know, so I work with women who will say to their partner, like, I need you to physically stand at the door and send people away for the first 24 hours, you know, or, or 48 hours or two weeks or, you know, whatever it is that feels appropriate. Um, because then you don't, you don't have to do it yourself. You're dealing with a thousand other things, right? If you've just given birth, like you don't need to also annoy your, you know, Aunt Mildred. So let somebody else do that for you. Um, 
but, you know, really setting up this time as sort of sacred um, and and protecting yourself and what your family needs. And, you know, that's going to look different for everyone. Some people are very social and they want lots and lots of visitors and people in the postpartum room and coming to the home, you know, the weeks after. Great. If that's for you, great. But remember that you don't owe anything to anybody except for yourself and your baby. Um, And so if you feel like you need to kind of like cocoon yourself for a couple of weeks or months, you know, it's okay to do that. You know, the, the point where I would say to consider, you know, reaching out for help um, is if you feel like you're, if you start to feel like you're isolated, you know, that's Mm. the difference. There's a difference between feeling like people are sort of forcing themselves in your space and feeling so alone where you're starting to, you know, feel depressed or anxious. Those are times when I really would encourage people to reach out to help, you know, for help, not only to their friends and family, but to a therapist, um, you know, if that's starting to become an issue, but really, you know, helping mothers to feel empowered to say what they need from the beginning. So whether it's people physically coming into their space when they don't want them there or people like offering advice that isn't necessarily (laughs) asked for or welcome or, you know, questions that are not, um, you know, you're breastfeeding, right? Or like, oh my gosh, look, you still look six months pregnant. Like all of these things that we say to people Mm -hmm. after they've given birth and become parents that just like serve no purpose but to make people doubt themselves, you know, or feel bad about themselves. Um, So really as a culture, you know, shifting the way that we treat new parents um, and, you know, letting moms know that they can advocate for what they need. Do you have anything, because I feel like you're going to have this answer for me, Diana, so I'm just going to go ahead and ask it, even though it's kind of (laughs) crazy. I hope so. When someone plants that seed of doubt in you, Mm. how do you extract it? That is a great question. You know, I wish that I could say, like just from a personal level, I wish that I could say like, oh, well, I'm confident enough to not like to just let it roll off my skin. Um, And there are moments in my life where I've had that level of confidence and there are moments when I have not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not always that easy. You know, the thing that I think is so powerful is to think about yourself in the same way that your baby thinks about you, you know, and this goes for moms, I mean, well beyond the baby years, you know, just like, think about how much your child, like, loves you doesn't even come close. Like your baby is obsessed with you. I mean, as any mom knows, like you, like the reason that we cannot pee or shower or do anything in peace is because they're just, they're just so in love with you. Right. So think about like, almost like, okay, someone, someone makes you doubt yourself because of, you know, you let your kid watch, you know, one extra TV show than they think is appropriate or, you know, whatever the thing is like, think about your kid. Like, would your kid ever think badly about you? Like, no, your kid just thinks that you are moon and stars. Um, and so I, I try to sometimes like when I'm having a bad, you know, like, Oh my God, I've got a good mom day. Um, you know, 
do my, would my kids agree? You know, they might be mad at me because I, you know, I wouldn't let them play with the, you know, the kitchen knife or I, you know, wouldn't let them have Girl Scout cookies for breakfast. You know, they may be mad at me, but do they think I'm a bad mom? Like that idea has never even occurred to them, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And ultimately that's who we're accountable to. Like we're accountable to ourselves and we're accountable to our children. And so, so you know, you know, yeah. And like, at the end of the day, you know, you're, you are going to make mistakes. Like I am a midwife and a pediatric nurse and I make mistakes every day, (laughs) you know, like you're just going to make mistakes. But if you can say to yourself at the end of the day, you know what, I did my best and I did everything from a place of love and good intention, then you're doing it right. And that's enough. So great. It reminds me of our earlier discussion about the values, because if you can simplify it down to, okay, who am I really responsible for or accountable to myself, my children, and my partner, and then everyone else, it just kind of can turn down the volume on on their advice or suggestions or digs or whatever. Um, That is so beautiful. And thank you so much, Diana. Thank you for coming on. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Um, I love your work. Um, And I just thank you for having me. Listeners, you can find The Motherly Guide to Becoming Mama. It's available for pre-order and out April 14th, wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget to check out motherly.com. Special thanks to our super longtime listener and fantastic mom, Maggie Borum, for matchmaking us with this episode. (laughs) Our sound engineer is Owen O'Neill. Our original music is by Jeremy Turner. And our production assistant is Olivia Hasty. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and share with friends. Your word of mouth means everything to our independent podcast. Also, join our Not Annoying newsletter at AtomicMoms.com. And join our conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Atomic Moms. Until next time, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm-hmm.